Hello, everyone, and those of you who are joining us from Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, online, oh, I think you've made a good choice because God is at work, and we're about to dive into his word together to see what he has to say. We begin a new three-part series today. I'm calling Debut of a Disciple. Now, what is a debut? I don't know if that word is kind of new to you, but... If you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, it'll say something like a person's first appearance or performance in a particular capacity or role. And that's what water baptism is for a disciple of Jesus. It's like a coming out party. It's as though we're saying to God, to our friends, and even declaring to evil principalities and powers, I belong to Jesus. I renounce Satan. I renounce the forces of evil. And I'm committed by God's grace to live the rest of my life as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's what you're really saying in your baptism. Now, if you've been around grace very long, you've probably observed this. You know that at all three of our campuses, we baptize people in water on a regular basis. Now, you may wonder, why? Why do you guys do that? Well, it's because if you read the New Testament, you get the idea from reading the Bible that baptism is a pretty big deal. In fact, you might be curious to hear that out of the 27 books in the New Testament, 11 of them speak to baptism in one way or another. In the book of Acts alone, which is kind of the history book in your New Testament, if you wanna know kind of the history of the early church in a very concise and compacted way, there are nine specific episodes that talk about baptism, that show people being baptized in water. And if you kind of scrutinize those carefully, you'll notice something that's similar. In every single case, a person was baptized in water pretty close chronologically to the time that they repented of their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the very first sermon that the Apostle Peter ever preached contained these classic words, a challenge to anyone with ears to hear, repent and be baptized. And so that's what you see over and over again. People believe, and they're baptized in water. By the way, that's why some churches in our world actually keep the baptismal tank full all the time. It's like an act of faith. They're saying, as they keep it full of warm water and plenty of towels on hand and baptismal robes for people to wear, they're saying, listen, if you have repented and faith, placed your faith in Christ, we want you to be baptized before you even leave this service, okay? Now, I'm not ridiculing that at all. In fact, I kind of like the, the eagerness and the excitement and the anticipation of that practice. But I believe it's just perhaps a bit premature, you see, I think that we have a responsibility as leaders, at least, to get a sense of, does this person really understand what this means? 
Do they think this is just getting dunked? Do they understand what's behind this when we immerse them in baptism? Do they show evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in their life? Are they hungry for the things of God? Do they show a desire for holiness? Do we see any sense of deep conviction of sin and life change here? Those are some things we really need to know. But if we have an indication that all of that is going on, that those things are very much a part of this person's life, that I think we need to baptize people pretty close to when they place their faith in Christ. Because for a disciple of Jesus, please hear me, not to be baptized is a serious act of disobedience to God. Jesus, in his great commission, when he gave his disciples kind of their marching orders, he said these words in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, a lot of people think that's the finish line. Hey, got baptized. I'm good to go. Got my ticket to heaven. Woo, live the way I want. It's not the finish line. It's more like the starting block. Because Jesus went on to say, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Wow, that's a whole lifetime of learning. So there's still a lot to come after your baptism. You're just getting started. That's your debut. But to not baptize true believers is serious negligence on the part of the church, and it is disobedience on the part of an individual disciple. So as we begin this new brief series today that we're calling Debut of a Disciple, I wanna talk today about what it means to be crucified with Christ because there's imagery at work here. As we lower a person under the water, it is symbolic of death, as if they're in a watery grave. It's symbolic of our being crucified with Christ. As they remain a moment, hopefully not too long, under the water, I sometimes joke, I think we ought to hold people under the water until they agree to start tithing. That's what we ought to do. <laughs> Whew, then bring them back up, you know? Some people would die under there. I want you to know right now. But as they're under, very seriously, as they're under the water for just a moment or two, it's symbolic of being buried with Christ. We're gonna talk about that next week. And then as we raise them out of the water, again, is a powerful symbol of being raised with Christ to live in a whole new way of life. So what are we saying here? We're saying that baptism is an outward physical act that portrays and symbolizes a powerful spiritual reality, okay? Now, with that said, let's state the obvious thing right up front. The inner spiritual reality, and we'll talk about that in a moment, what that is, is far more important than the outward physical act or the symbol that portrays that reality. 
Let me try to illustrate. I'm wearing a wedding ring right here. I've worn it faithfully for almost 34 years now when, from the time that Debbie gave it to me. Now, this ring doesn't make me married. <laughs> what it is, it's a wonderful symbol of my marriage. It's a form of an announcement to anyone who cares to know, Rex Keener is a one-woman man. He's signed, sealed, and delivered, fully committed to Deborah Keener. They entered into that solemn covenant years ago in the sight of God, and a great company of witnesses, I think 400 and something of them, who witnessed that with us as we celebrated our debut as a married couple. But hear me, this ring didn't unite me with Debbie. It, it simply signifies a profound and life-changing commitment and the mystical union that God brought about that day. Similarly, baptism does not unite you with Christ. It has no legal standing at all, but is a powerful symbol of your being united with Christ. And even if I lost this ring, even if I lost this ring, I'm so glad I'd still be married to Deb. It's that mystical union that is the most important part. Now, practically speaking, it doesn't really matter where your baptism takes place. I'll never forget the first baptism I ever officiated was when I was in a college uh, at Carson Newman College in Jefferson City, Tennessee. And a young man named George Husk, that was his name, George Husk had come to faith in Christ as a college student. And he asked me if I would baptize him in water. And of course, I was glad to do so. I knew George, I talked to him many times, knew his story, knew how he was hungry for Christ and growing and so on. And so in the college swimming pool where the swim team trained, in the off hours, we had access to that. And so we could go there and swim. And so in one of those off hours, a small group of friends and I met there with George Husk. George and I went out into the water and after saying a few words and after he gave a testimony, I baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget that. George, by the way, and the young lady he married a couple years later went on to be missionaries for many, many years in South America, passing on their faith in Christ. In the early days of Grace Fellowship, about 30 years ago, you know what we did? Whoa! We baptize people in the Scroon River. <laughs> Cold. Our thinking was that would be their first real test of discipleship, man. If they can survive that, battling the world, the flesh, and the devil will be a cinch. I mean, that water was frigid. But don't miss my point. Whether you're baptized in a swimming pool, in a river, or in a nice, clean, baptismal tank, doesn't matter. It's that inner spiritual, spiritual reality that is the most important thing. Now, with all of that said, what exactly is that reality that you're pointing to, that you're talking about? What's happening in the legal counsel of God that baptism points to and signifies? 
Well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to read a couple of verses here from Romans chapter 5. If there's anything that Scripture makes clear is that Jesus' death on the cross was one that was an atoning death. To put it in simple words, Jesus died for us on the cross. We read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Look on down a couple more verses to verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he do that? And what in the world does that mean? What was going on? Well, here's where we need to understand what was happening as Jesus died on the cross. There are two things in the character of God that made the cross absolutely necessary. If God wants to forgive guilty sinners like me and like you, if God wants to save sinful humanity, these two things have to be dealt with. Number one, the fact that God is just. And number two, the fact that God is merciful. Justice and mercy are a part of God's very character. Read the scriptures you know, for yourself and you'll see it over and over again. Over and over it declares that God is a God of justice and that God has a passion for justice. But the scriptures are equally clear that God is a merciful God and that it is not his desire to punish us and give us what we deserve. But when you think about it, these two attributes are incompatible in a sense, aren't they? Stay with me here as I explain this. To be just means that you give people what they deserve. When law is broken, punishment has to be meted out because justice cannot be mocked. To be merciful means that you don't give people what they deserve. In other words, you exempt them from the deserved punishment. Do you see the problem? How do you give people what they deserve on the one hand and not give them what they deserve at the same time? How can both justice and mercy be fully realized. Now, let me try to illustrate. Now, all illustrations are inadequate, okay? They all break down at some point. So no illustration is perfect, but let me try. Let's suppose that I'm speeding on Delator Road. Now, for those of you who may not know, Delator Road is the road in front of our Latham facility, okay? And so I did a little research since I was kind of ignorant about speeding tickets. Uh, <clears throat> some of you are not. Some of you know all about them <laughs> because it's a regular part of your experience, all right? But thankfully, I was kind of ignorant, so I looked it up online, and based on what I could tell online, looking at numerous different places, the amount of a speeding ticket varies greatly. That's what I learned. It's not just one penalty. I mean, it can vary greatly depending on how far above the speed limit you were going, uh, 
uh, where you were exactly. For instance, if you were speeding in a work area, oh my goodness, you're your fine can be doubled for that. It can also be higher if you're a repeat offender and so on. And from my research, I learned that I could be fined as much as six, one ticket, $693. That's a pretty hefty speeding ticket. So let's say that uh, I'm on Delator Road and the posted speed limit is 40 miles per hour, by the way. And if you've been on that road, that you know it's not perfectly straight, but it's a pretty straight road. There aren't really any curves in it or anything. And let's say that I just, in a moment of insanity, utter insanity, start at one end of Delator Road, and I just put the pedal to the metal, babe. And man, I, I accelerate, and I go and go, and even though it's reckless, I just keep going like a bat out of Hades. And I don't realize that there's a work area on the other end of Delator. And just as I top out at 90 miles an hour in a work area, a police officer clocks me doing 90. I'm toast. I mean, I'm toast. I'm gonna get the maximum penalty. I acted irresponsibly, recklessly, and illegally, and now I have to pay for it. So I'm summoned to court, and the judge says to me, were you driving your car at 90 miles an hour on Delator Road on such and such a date? Yes, sir, I was. He says, I hereby fine you $693. But just suppose, just suppose for a moment, watch this, that the judge knows me, and let's suppose that the judge is also a merciful person. Now, the judge can't ignore justice. Justice cannot be mocked. Justice must be maintained. Rex Keeter is guilty, and he's fined $693, but because the judge is also merciful and cares about me as a person, he says, look, I've got my checkbook with me. I'm gonna cover this fine out of my own personal account. And he does. And the official court record reads, Rex Keener, crime, speeding at 90 miles an hour on Delator Road. Guilty. Punishment, $693 fine. And then it says in big, bold, beautiful letters, paid in full. And I, wow. I can't believe what's happening. My head is spinning. I walk out of the courtroom that day, the grateful recipient of mercy, but I've not paid one cent for my crime. And as far as the court system is concerned, justice has also been fully satisfied. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus did for us when he spread his arms and he died on the cross. Now, let me say again, that is a very inadequate illustration to explain all the profundity of what Jesus did for us at the cross. But hopefully, at least this part is being conveyed, that Jesus paid the penalty on the cross that I deserve to pay, that you deserve to pay, so that we could be forgiven and free 
And although he was fully innocent, no sin, he satisfied the just wrath of God against sin because God cannot be mocked. The soul that sins must die. There is a penalty. The wages of sin as death. But Jesus died there so that you and I could be the recipients of mercy and be fully forgiven. And mark this, mark this now. It wasn't, it was, that didn't happen because the judge of the universe said, ah, don't worry about it. Sin's no big deal. No, if he'd taken that attitude, justice would not have been served. But in paying the penalty himself on the cross, he maintained both his justice and his mercy. Now, little break here. I know that's a lot of deep theology, and I'm asking you to really, really stretch today. And by the way, all three of these messages are going to fit perfectly together. You want to listen to all of them together because they're going to fit together, I think, nicely. And as we go, we're going to get more and more practical. This is the most theoretical day of all, but we've got to lay this foundation or we won't know what baptism is really about. Let me ask you a question. Not a trick question, so don't worry about your answer. Don't worry about being wrong on this. When you as a Christian confess your sin to God and seek his forgiveness, are you appealing to his justice or his mercy? Now, I'm gonna ask in a moment for a show of hands. Again, don't worry about it. Don't sweat this at all. I just wanna know your first response to that. We're first gonna ask justice, then we're gonna ask if you think you're appealing to his mercy, okay? So are you ready to vote? When you confess your sins to God as a Christian, are you appealing to God's justice? Could I see your hands, please? Okay, all right, just one or two hands. If you think you're, when you confess your sins as a Christian to God, you're appealing to his mercy, please raise your hand. Okay, that's how I thought you would vote. All right. Now, I want you to look at a verse with me on the screens. If you're a Christian, this ought to be a very familiar verse. In fact, I, I would hope that everyone would know this verse. It, this is one of those that really is worth taking the time to hide in your heart and memorize. Here's what it says, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, don't raise your hand again. But I wonder if you would vote a little differently, perhaps, after reading that. Now, again, God never stops being merciful. Don't get me wrong. But when you and I, as Christians, come to God asking forgiveness, God forgives you and me, not on the basis of mercy, but on the basis of justice, he can't stop being merciful, and he can't stop being just. His nature is immutable. He does not change. But at the cross, Christ satisfied the justice of God. And now you and I can be forgiven on the basis of his justice, not on the basis of his mercy. Now, we receive mercy when we come to his throne of grace. Yes, we receive mercy, but we're forgiven on the basis of his justice. If I could put it this way, God is legally, 
and morally bound by his own standard of justice that Christ satisfied on the cross, he is legally bound to forgive us when we come to him through Christ in repentance. Now, before, before I understood that, here's, wh- here's why I would point out something like that. You may think, wow, that's a kind of obtuse theological observation, Pastor. I mean, do we really need to know that? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Before I understood that, here's what I thought. Maybe I've sinned too many times. I mean, maybe God is just so sick and tired of forgiving this particular sin in my life, I'm just pushing his mercy a little too far. And so I began kind of faking it and acting like I didn't really need to confess. I began to doubt that God would actually forgive me for the same sin again. But when I came to understand theologically that I wasn't appealing to his mercy, but to his justice, I realized that I could come confidently. I realized that I could, not out of arrogance, no, it has nothing to do with me. I realized that because of what Christ did, I could come boldly and be certain of forgiveness. Dear brothers and sisters, God forgives us not because he's kind, although he is, Not because he's merciful, although he is. He forgives us because justice has been served. Thank you very much. It's been served. And there's money in the count, so to speak. As the apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have been saved not by perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. Wow, that's a game changer. Now, if you're trekking along with the logic of this, someone who's been following along might say at this point, well, pastor, that sounds like I can just sin all I want to, no big deal. Well, that's the question that the apostle Paul anticipated in Romans chapter six. Look at what he said in verse one. If you have a Bible available there or look on the screens, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall we go on sinning? Wow, is this permission to sin boldly so that grace will abound? Because God will continually give me what I don't deserve. He continually gives me what has been justly obtained through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So why not? Why not just go on sinning boldly? Some throughout history have concluded that, and some Christians seem to be playing around with that today. But he answers that question in the very next verse. He says, by no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Not only did Christ die for me, but I died in Christ. What does that mean? Oh, it's so important. He goes on and he says in verse two, we died to sin. Verse three, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We died with him. We've been crucified with him. What happened to Jesus on the cross is deemed to have happened to us. Verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Verse five, he just goes on and on, pounding this point. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. He goes on, verse six, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse eight, now if we died with Christ, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. So when the question arises, and it does, does this mean we can just go on sinning boldly so that grace may increase? Paul essentially says that's not the way real Christians think. Because it isn't just that Christ died for you, you also died in Christ. And in so doing, you died to sin. Let me say it again. What happened to Christ on the cross is deemed to have happened to you as well. Verse three, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's as though you died. It's as though you paid the price. It's as though you did it, but it was in the person of a substitute, and that substitute was God himself. Now, I know this is a lot to drink in, and let me say again, this is our more heavy theological day. We're gonna get more and more practical as these weeks go on. But I want to go back to my speeding ticket for just a moment here. <laughs> Let's suppose that I leave the court that day and my head is spinning, like I said, but I think about it for a while and my conscience starts bothering me. It's bothering me because I think about the fact that I didn't pay anything. And so I go back and I find the court clerk and I say, can, can I just contribute something like maybe 30 bucks or something like that for my fine, you know, sort of as a donation. And so she looks at me curiously and then she checks the court records and says, no, the record here says in big, bold, beautiful letters, paid in full. And I say, yeah, but you don't understand. See, I didn't personally pay that. She says, I hear you. But as far as the court is concerned, you've paid it. It's impossible for you to add anything else. You can't add anything, she says with a smile, to paid in full. But then, get this, she kind of leans in. So it's just the two of us. She says, just between us, to try to add something to this is kind of like a mockery. You see, she winks and says, I'm aware of what the judge did for you. And to try to add to this, it's like you're blowing smoke in the judge's face. You're kind of saying what you did is not really enough. By the way, you should just, instead of trying to pay for it or add to it, which you can't do, your best response is just to go out of this courtroom today and live the rest of your life with enormous gratitude for what the judge did for you. By the way, that's why there's really technically no such thing as penance, penance. 
You don't have to jump through hoops and try to punish yourself in order to add to what Christ the judge did. He's already done it for you at the cross. The fine has been paid in full. You are forgiven and free. And friends, the glorious conclusion of all this is when you understand what Jesus did for you at the cross as it's symbolized in your baptism, you spell the Christian life differently. You know how most people spell the Christian life? I talk to tons of them. They spell it D-O, do, do, do. Here's what they're thinking. Here's what they're asking. What can I do to atone for, well, Jesus, no, I know Jesus died, but I've got to add, I've got to earn this. What can I do so I can be acceptable to God? Do, what do I have to do? But the real way to spell the Christian life is D-O-N-E, done. It's not about what we can do. It's about what Christ has already done. And since I've been united with him, it's been done for me. Now, we've called this message crucified with Christ because when we descend into the waters of baptism, it is symbolic of our death with Christ the fact that Satan has no more grounds to accuse us. And let me make a plug here for next week. You may wonder why we would talk about being buried with Christ. That is a huge concept in scripture. Some of you are being dogged daily. Let me say it again. Dogged daily by Satan over sins of the past, already under the blood of Jesus, but Satan has no right to you. Your problem is you don't understand that you're buried. You're buried with Christ. And we're gonna talk about that next week. You don't wanna miss next week. So coming full circle, it's true. This wedding ring given to me by Debbie almost 34 years ago is a wonderful symbol that I am married and all the wonderful things that that signifies. But you know what? You know what? You could go to a jeweler, you could buy a wedding ring, pop it on your finger, go through life hoping to give the impression that you're married, be a total fraud because that ring, that ring in and of itself proves nothing. Baptism in and of itself may just prove that you got wet in and of itself. But if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, oh, he's forgiven all your sin. He's adopted you into his family. He's come inside of you by his Spirit, and he is doing an incredible work of changing you from the inside out. And if that has happened to you, baptism is your coming out party. It's your marvelous debut where you declare to God, your friends, even to the evil principalities and powers, I renounce you, Satan. I have been crucified with Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised again with him to live in a whole new way of life. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what the Christian life is all about. Father, hallelujah. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, and thank you that justice was satisfied at the cross. 
justice was served. And thank you that we can come to you now on the basis of Jesus' finished work at the cross. Lord, I pray that in this series, there would be lights going off. There would be explosions of understanding. There'd be breakthroughs of insight where people would begin to realize, I've not been living to my kingdom privileges here. Father, thank you for all that you did for us and that we spell the Christian life D-O-N-E, far from making us passive observers. You've called us to be active participants with you, living by grace day by day, living by the empowerment of the Spirit. And may we learn and learn and practice that in these days. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.